Create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. If you've been a regular listener to the podcast, you're beginning to hear familiar phrases coming from successful creators. Just do it is certainly a common refrain, as is this piece of advice from my latest guest, Eric Samuels. And another really important element that I've, I've learned and preached is learn the rules before you break the rules. There's a reason that rules exist, again, in music, in writing, and and everything. And and the people who've broken the rules very rarely uh, go directly to rule breaking. Though I've known Eric for several years, I never really knew the many roads he traveled to get to where he is today. When I first met Eric, he was a radio programmer. I thought he was a little buttoned up the way he was always quoting market research as a reason not to play a record I was promoting at the time. As a result, finding out that he had tried his hand at being a stand-up comedian kind of shocked me. Of course, I knew he loved music, but I had no idea that he was also a musician. And years after he suddenly left the music business, I was startled to find out that he had not only pursued a career as a mentalist, but had become among the finest in his field. Even magicians Penn and Teller loved his act when he performed on their show Fool Us. I had so many questions for Eric, but first I wanted to see if he could explain the difference between a magician, an illusionist, and a mentalist. Well, uh, what I do as a mentalist has more to do with um, the psychology side of magic. So I, I define what I do is um, using psychology suggestion and stagecraft to anticipate and influence behavior. So I'm more focused on how we behave and how that can be, like I say, influenced or anticipated. For example, I, a lot of what I do is based upon the notion of body language, of tells, of how we communicate without words in our mannerisms, facial expressions, how we stand, for example. Magic, um, again, you, you know, there's an old joke, um, ask opinions of three lawyers, you'll get five opinions. I think with, with magic, there's no one definition, but the notion that I have about magic is it's really about um, creating sense of um, the impossible wonderment with really no, I don't think there are any laws or barriers. You can do anything. It could be funny. It can be dramatic. Uh, the idea is to, to fool the eye uh, and to entertain. And I think what I do is more about fooling the mind and entertaining. And I actually put entertaining first, even when I'm doing keynote presentations. To me, the, the, the single most important thing as a performer, as a communicator, is to make that connection and maintain that connection in a world where, let's face it, we are so easily distracted. Our attention spans are the shortest they've ever been. And the illusionist is, is sort of, that's the sort of somewhere in the middle. An illusionist is someone who, I guess it's more of a visual notion, right? It's an illusion. We think of optical illusions and things like that. I'm fascinated by those as well, by the way. When you, when you see the image and is, is it a rabbit or a duck or <laughs> these kinds of things are, are, are part of what led me into doing what I was doing because our, our mind is so easily led astray on the one hand and on the other hand, it's remarkable at cutting through billions of pieces of data to uh, resolve an issue. Right. Well, actually, that, that sort of leads into the question of what inspired you to become a mentalist? Well, I have a, 
I've been fortunate in my life to have been able to sort of, forgive the, the cliche, dip my brush into a lot of different palettes and, and do a lot of different things. While I was in broadcasting for nearly 30 years as my main vocation, I was a professional drummer. I did stand-up comedy. I wrote columns for newspapers. Um, I was a video game reviewer for 10 years. Um, these were all sort of serious side interests. And uh, before I even got into broadcasting, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life as a, you know, I think I was 19 or 20 years old living in Montreal and, and decided that playing music as a drummer, uh, there was nothing that made me remarkable. And I, I had a, a, one of those moments of, of um, I, I guess, a, a little bit of uh, introspection and honestly, honesty rather, and determine that, you know, th this could be a tough road to hoe. I'm not a composer. I'm not a singer. I have band as a band leader, but you know, there were better drummers, et cetera, et cetera. So I started looking, what could I do? And I was always fascinated by psychology. And as I often, uh, tell the story, I, I went and took a, a series of tests, uh, which would determine, you know, your, uh, <laughs> your strengths and weaknesses, um, your tendencies, and what kind of vocation would be best for you. They were, I think they called them vocational aptitude tests administered by a psychologist. And this psychologist in a, in, in a classic mode of, moment of transference determined that I too should be a psychologist. So, but it was a fascinating process. And I said, okay, well, psychology, well, that's interesting. And it, it had always interested me. And I went back to college and started taking courses in psychology and, um, uh, you know, realized how messed up I was because that's what happens when you take psychology, you start recognizing all the weird behaviors that you have because let's face it, none of us is quote unquote normal. So way back then I had that interest and I even took a course in college in parapsychology and I was fascinated by that. And then, you know, I, I ended up getting distracted by the campus radio station that led me, as I had indicated, into um, a different lane. I, I became a radio quote unquote announcer or DJ that then I moved into management program director uh, and then on a national level. And then when, um, when I really saw that that career had, you know, I, I accomplished everything that I had set out to do and I was like, okay, what's next? I had been doing this as a sort of a side interest for a number of years. Um, I discovered it quite late in life, actual mentalism. I didn't even know what this thing was. Although I grew up in Montreal where, the Amazing Kreskin was had a, a weekly television show that I believe was produced out of Ottawa. So that was sort of always fascinating to me, but I never thought this is something I could do. And um, one of the things, I don't remember what year it was, I'm living in Vancouver and things are, I'm having you know a great time there, very successful with the radio stations I was in charge of. And I wanted to do something to give back to the community. And I remember at the time I was dabbling a little bit and, you know, I knew like a card trick and, you know, a thing with ESP cards and whatever. And I, and I thought, you know, what, what could I do to give back to the community? And then I don't know the exact lineage, but I ended up as um, a performer on weekends, a volunteer performer at BC Children's Hospital, doing magic for kids and their families because their families would often come and visit children that were in the hospital on the weekend. And that was um, profoundly eye-opening on a bunch of levels for me. I'd always been a performer. I'd been on stage. I was comfortable in front of people. This is, was so different and, and so 
um, in, in some ways, uh, especially initially, heartbreaking to see what I had to see uh, in that set of circumstances. But at the same time, it was so rewarding to see these kids smile and laugh. And that put a bug in me that kind of blossomed. Um, I had been away from performing for a number of years in, in radio. I had moved into management on a full-time basis. I was no longer on the air performing. I had not really played in bands for a while. I hadn't done stand-up in years. So I got the performance bug back in me and that started to develop. And then I learned about mentalism and I started, I was like a kid in a candy store. I just wanted to read everything I could to watch every video I could to meet with the people who did this and learn about it. And I, uh, I just took it on, um, like I said, uh, with a sort of ferocious appetite um, and started performing, uh, I call it, you know, as a weekend warrior, taking it quite seriously, but it was my, my second vocation. And then, as I said, when, when things in the radio business changed to the point where I said, okay, what's next? Uh, because I never saw it as a career for life. It was just the thing that I was doing while I was passionate. I started to think about, well, you know, a little late in life to go in and start just being a performer. So how can I find a niche, create an opportunity? And having a background and a lot of what I did was about marketing and branding. I thought about, okay, well, how do I create, find, create a niche so that I can perform this mentalism thing, but do it in a way that um, provides a unique lane and an opportunity. So what initially, what kind of material were you performing when you were doing as a mentalist? Uh, like, um, like most performers, there are exceptions to every role. I was doing other people's stuff. <laughs> you know, um, we were talking off mic earlier about playing guitar, for instance, everybody picks up a guitar, depends on the era, right? You, you start playing dun, 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 or at one point it was like 25 or six to four. And before that it was classical gas and right. So we, you learn the basic chords. And in terms of mentalism, there were the masters and the people who did what are considered to be the, the sort of core presentations and ideas I mentioned earlier about ESP cards, things like that. What, what struck me as out of place in much the same way that a, a song that no longer sort of holds, you know, the, the same influence or power, there, there was sort of a, uh, no, I wouldn't say a brooding, but there was a darkness. A lot of mentalists furled their brows, touched their, with two fingers on their chin and wore black. And I, that's not me. Um, you know, a big part of what I like to do is to have fun and, and laugh and, and have people laugh. So. I took a different, I started doing other people's stuff that I found worked in that sort of niche, but it still wasn't my stuff. And then one day I realized what I had told, oh, so many different on-air performers um, that I work with. I was, a, as a program director, think of me as a, a director in whatever film or, you know, a producer in a, a music studio my job was to create the an environment in which each performer could do their very best work to 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 give them the tools to give them the feedback and what i had said to many many performers was look you know you can go into the studio for your show every day and do the basics and not make any mistakes 
And unless you have just this extraordinary charisma and ability right out of the box, which is so rare, I think in any field, then one day you have to go in there and say, I'm going to take some risks. I'm going to reveal something about who I am and I can crash and burn, or this can open new doors for me. But until the day you do that and take those risks and risk exposing yourself, which is a tremendous fear for uh, most people, right? We put a facade on, this is what I think a radio DJ should sound like. You know, it's, uh, that was, this is, here's the temperature, uh, wear your umbrella, whatever. Uh, until you, 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 take that risk and have something to say and an opportunity to do it and find out how people respond to that. You're never going to, to reach, I think your maximum potential, particularly in an industry where, you know, the, the, the most successful people, the highest rated, uh, generating the highest salaries are drive shows, morning drive, afternoon drive, where quote unquote personality is called for making that connection with the, the listener and radio, a um, bit of an anomaly to other communication mediums in that we always would refer to the listener as a singular because of the intimacy of listening to the radio. At least in the olden days, you're in your car, radio's on, it's you. The voice coming out is addressing, have you ever been to the supermarket? You're in the checkout lane as opposed to, hey, have you guys, which is more of a television view of the, the wider audience. So taking those two elements, right? The one-on-one -on -one connection with the audience, taking risks, revealing of yourself. I, I, I really forced myself to, to get rid of material that, that wasn't, um, not just wasn't my own original stuff, but, but didn't speak to those two considerations. It wasn't consistent with my voice, my character, my personality, and also didn't allow me to further that connection with the audience. And it's funny because when I was on the radio, I had opportunity uh, to interview countless performers. And I, I had some, some favorite questions that I would ask because I, I mean, you know what this is like, you were sitting in the room with, uh, you know, thousands of people who were going through this process of doing 19 interviews in a row. And I always wanted to come across as, okay, this is going to be a little different and hopefully a little challenging. And, and I would ask questions like, Tell me a time about you wrote a song and realized you, you couldn't perform it because it wasn't your voice. And it was interesting to see how performers reacted to that, the notion. Stand-up comics do that, too. They come up with something and go, okay, but that's not my character. So they either bury it or give it or sell it to someone else. So I think that's an important aspect of developing your, your voice, your character, your personality, whether you're a, a musician, a, a comic any kind of, of performer. Um, actors can, can, I guess, change, uh, they can become chameleons. Um, for the rest of us, it's difficult, particularly in, in what I do in that every show is different. Every show is, you're, you're kind of walking the razor's edge because this is not an exact science. Things always go, you know, it's Murphy's Law is, is ever present. And the moment that things are thrown off course, you're going to resort to your default behavior, your character's default behavior. And that's not if that's not consistent with who you are, there's going to be an incongruity that the audience is going to pick up on. And any connection cachet you may have established is gone. Like, it's like watching a movie and, you know, the shark jumping occurs and all of a sudden you have that, that moment of, of uh, 
disconnect, right? So I was always very cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, very long answer to a, a short question. <laughs> People want to hear you, not me. That's okay. I, I'm curious, do, how long, do you remember how long it was until you um, took that brave leap of beginning to uh, do your own material? It was relatively quick because I had the benefit of not having to put food on the table on the basis of what uh, what I was doing as a performer. I was still working. I still had a, a salary on a full-time basis, and I was starting to do gigs on the side. And the other thing I was doing, which, again, is um, something that I learned is, you know, I, I would in, invariably annoy the hell out of people around me because I'm like, hey, can I show you something? Hey, I, gotta, I want it. And often I was, you know, trying to sell wine before it's time. I was like really excited about something, but I hadn't quite had it down. And, and you'd get the, the guy, well, I say, keep working on that, Eric. So when I performed often, it was for people in, in my industry. So until I broke out and started to walk out on stage with a clean slate for an audience who had no perception whatsoever of who I was or what I did, that was another massive step in the learning curve because there's expectations based on our experience with the people in our lives, right? So people knew me one way and, um, you know, back when I was a stand-up comic, it was the same thing. I had a day job. The guys I was working around in clubs did not. And, and some of them resented the fact that, you know, I had a safety net. And, and some of these guys would, would test my metal. I mean, I got heckled by comics just to see <laughs> how I would respond. And that's the best, one of the best things that ever happened because you really learn, uh, you know, how to be in the moment and, uh, and manage that. And, and some you win and, and more often than not with comics, sometimes you lose. But when uh, the, the next big learning curve for me was getting out in front of audiences that didn't know me. And that was really important. Um, I make a distinction between practice and rehearsal. I think practice for what I do is really about learning the technique, the mechanics, you know, the, uh, the staging, the blocking, whatever of a presentation or a routine that you need to do, I think in, in solitude to a great extent where you can really focus on the elements that go into a presentation. Rehearsal, to me, should be uncomfortable, whereas practice should be comfortable. So rehearsal should be putting yourself in a set of circumstances where there are distractions, where things can and will go wrong, where people don't know who you are, probably don't care who you are, um, and uh, you're really testing in real-world conditions how your stuff's going to hold up. And I, I like to do both of those things before I say that something, a presentation is ready for basically a paying audience or a paying customer. So, so that's kind of the process that I learned to go through because there's, there's a massive safety net in being a performer and not having to rely upon that, as I said, to put food on the table and also performing for friends, family, and, and you know, uh, peers, people who know you. Um, and it's particularly ridiculous when you're in a management position and, you know, it's like the, I don't know, the annual picnic or whatever, and here you come performing for everybody and, you know, you're expecting honest feedback, although hopefully they, they enjoy the few times that I did that. You know, um, as you're talking about that, it, it 
made me think of, um, are you, are you familiar with Mike Birbiglia, the, the comedian? Yeah, so he has a podcast. I'm not sure if you listen to it, but on his podcast, he is working through material for his next show. And he is working on it uh, in live time with his guests. So he plays this material out for them, and then they comment on it, and then his material has um, has progressed over the course of this podcast as he works towards his next show, which is interesting because he's, I guess, what, practicing and creating this material to the audience that is eventually going to hear the material in its full form. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a very clever premise. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld's new book uh, is it called "Is This Anything?" Anyway, he goes through that process and talks about how comics talk to each other and go, "Is this anything? Is there is there a thing here?" And when you read about his process, I mean, the, the fine tuning of the, the efficiency of stand up comics is remarkable because they've known forever, you know, dealing with an inebriated audience, short attention span, people who are ready, willing, and able to talk back if if you lose that, you know, being in the zone, whatever uh, it may be to individual performers, that's, that, that's the front line of, I think, of being a live performer, being on your feet. So yeah, what, whatever process they have for refining material, to get a tight 20, even a tight 10, 10 minutes or 20 minutes of really solid material takes years because every one of those elements is worked and reworked and then, you know, edited, sometimes put away, it comes back or it just, it, it, it dies a, uh, an unpleasant death um, just to get that one line right for those guys who, guys, gals, um, who uh, are at the top of the game. So anytime you can, um, you can test material in, in a non-artificial environment, uh, I think that goes for any performer. That's just a, um, an ideal set of circumstances. Like I said, I want, I want the practice. I want, I want sitting down and learning the chords to be comfortable where I just can do it over and over again so that I don't have to think about it. But then when I want to get out and perform and really put the feel in and everything else, I want to do that in an environment where I have to still accomplish other things make that connection with the audience, win them over perhaps. You know, oftentimes when I perform, I do a lot of corporate work um, as a speaker and as a pure entertainer. There's really two facets to, to what I offer in terms of services. So let's say that, you know, company X has had a three-day convention at the end of which there's a, a big dinner with everybody in a banquet hall back, you know, in the days of everyone in a banquet hall. And uh, there may be an award presentation. There's, you know, tastes like chicken banquet dinner there's there are bottles of wine etc and now it's time for me to come on scheduled for 8 30 and now it's 9 47. so i have to get out there and win over this audience who have been through three days of seminars um they've they've eaten they've been drinking they're socializing with people many of whom they haven't seen since last year's convention and my job is to immediately get their attention engage have them like me and entertain them for 30, 40 minutes. So if I don't have my shit together in terms of knowing the, the fingering on the fretboard to use the analogy, I have no chance of making that 
connection with the audience, right? So that's why going into um, an open mic scenario at a comedy club and doing a new piece or going to Toastmasters and doing it, or I did a thing in a, uh, a condo in Vancouver, they had a meeting room and everybody was just invited down, all these people I'd never met before and I did a performance for them. So I just try to create any environment where I can truly do a test run of material and, and then an honest assessment of, of what's working and what isn't. And that involves not only myself reviewing uh, recording, but getting uh, frank feedback from someone whose opinion I, I trust. Well, given that this is a podcast about creativity, can we talk a little bit about how you go about creating a routine? I talk a lot about this because I think, I think, the creative process is something that um, a lot of people wonder about, but we don't often talk about the science and what's really involved. And, and I think the other thing about creativity is that none, no two of us are built the same. We all acquire ideas, solutions in slightly different ways. I have, I have my process that I've kind of learned over the years, but one of the things I learned from studying what it is that I do about things like intuition is that it's not this sort of magical, intuitive, uh, sixth sense fairy dust thing. It's actually a, a psychoneurological process. Whereas we have neurons in our brain, in our subconscious that store, they're essentially like a, a massive hard drive of, of, stored memories of content. And, and as you well know, sometimes we just remember the most ridiculous inane stuff. And then we can't forget or we can't remember things that we consider important. Like if I said to you, what was the first landline telephone number you ever had as a kid, you probably remember it because it's implanted. It's, it's back there. It's useless to you at this point, but it's, it is stored there. And we also have memories of, of other things, some of which psychologists would say, you know, have, uh, whatever uh, uh, specific uh, embedded meaning. But the point is all these neurons exist. And then what's happening is, is our subconscious is going through a constant process of analysis. When new data comes in, it looks at that new data and compares it against old data. And if A plus B in the past has equaled C, that fires um, a neuron which sends that message to the conscious mind in the form of a feeling. So when you get a feeling, it's like a, um, if you remember the old Cole's notes, right? It's like a, a condensed version of a, of a large book. It's, it's like a Cole's notes uh, that you're receiving of a library of subconscious information. So if you're walking down the street, it's dark at night, something happens, all of a sudden you feel fear then it doesn't necessarily mean there's something that you should fear. It means the environment in which you are in the past has resulted in something that has caused that emotion, right? So I think the creative process also works at a subconscious level. Um, when I'm trying to solve a problem, so, so I start in the creative process by, by not thinking about how can I fool the audience. I think about the people in the audience and what it is I'd like them to experience, right? So, so then I kind of work backwards. Okay, what's the best way to make that happen? And then I think about it at a conscious level and I analyze it uh, six different ways 
um, think about methods to make that occur. And then, uh, you know, if something doesn't immediately come to mind, I just walk away from it and forget about it and I distract myself. And, and one of the things, and again, this is proven by neuropsychology. One of the things I do is just uh, walk away, forget it, do something entirely different, physical activity. I, I love just walking and listening to music on headphones that has nothing to do with anything. Pat Metheny is like my jam for that. I don't know why it just opens, it opens my mind. It just, it just works that way. And um, remarkably so many times when, when your subconscious has processed all this, and it could be hours, days, weeks, the idea just comes to you. And that's happened to me more often than not. That's my process. And I know that works similarly for a lot of people. Because the problem is if you keep pounding the old cliche, right, you keep pounding into the ground, you just dig a big rut and you miss all the lateral opportunities. Um, <laughs> I used to say, you know, there's a cliche that, uh, uh, you know, creative people think outside of the box, really creative people don't even know the box exists. And super creative people think, why is the box talking to me? So I think it's I think it's different I think it's different for everyone, but you have to be you have to be aware that the box is is only the starting point, right? The box is how it's been done in the past. And another really important element that I've I've learned and preached is learn the rules before you break the rules. There's a reason that rules exist again in music and writing and and everything. And and the people who've broken the rules very rarely. Uh, go directly to rule breaking. There are there are absolutely cases of that in in the art world in particular, and it's just for whatever reason they are the anomaly. But you know, people often say in the radio business, Howard Stern, he just changed the way everything. You know, he was just uh, rule breaker, groundbreaker. Yeah, but Howard Stern played by the rules for years, learned the rules, realized he didn't have the um, he wasn't made the way people who succeeded playing by those rules got to the top and then said, I got nothing to lose. Let's try it a different way, right? Learn the rules, then break the rules. And I think, I think the same exists uh, in the creative process. And I think breaking the rules, it's not, it shouldn't be the goal all the time, but it, it, you shouldn't be afraid of that. I think that's how you really achieve um, being unique. Pick a routine. Walk us through the the moment of inspiration through the creation, and you don't have to reveal any secrets on on the uh, the final trick. A lot of what I do by design is not about me. It's really about the audience. I said the audience experience. I want I want the the evening to be about them, right? And by design, it's about it's about me. What, what do they remember when they leave? I, I had a good time. I was entertained. My mind was blown. And it all happened at Eric Samuel's show. That's all I'm looking for, right? Um, just a quick aside, you know, we would often have stand-up comics who name people were in town doing a gig. And if we could get them in the radio station, they'd you know, go on the morning show or the afternoon drive show because most comics aren't up for a morning show. It's too way too early. And they'd be in the studio and they were funny because that's what they do even early. And sometimes the host would try to one up them. Never works, always uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and what I would say to the host is whatever happens on your show, you get credit for. It doesn't matter who made them laugh. They remember they listened to your show and they laughed. And that is the only thing that matters. It's the same on stage. No matter what happens during the show, I don't care if someone comes up and they get a bigger laugh than I did all night. That's fantastic because when people go home, they remember having laughed, had a good time. They don't attribute each individual laugh to, well, it was this uh, Steve guy who was on stage who one-upped Eric and that's weird. They don't think that way. They just had a good time, they laughed. So it's about the audience and their experience. So there's a, a, a one of the, I think the, the all-time great routines in all of mentalism is this notion where people come up and five people are given a board, a blackboard, they draw something. The performer then um, connects each drawing with each person. And it's, it's, it's powerful. It's, uh, it's called uh, psychometry is the notion that you can pick up on things that uh, relate to specific individuals based upon handwriting, other elements, the, the design, all these other things. It's half psychology and half bullshit. <laughs> and, and I could be lying when I gave you the half and half. So I, I like the routine, but it, it, to me, it was all about the look how clever I am. I can deduce blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to do this in a different way. So I started off with, okay, what would be more interesting? And I just came up with this idea. Again, one of these things that just came to me after consciously thinking about it and walking away was, wouldn't it be funny if I said to an audience, phone rings, famous Hollywood producer says, listen, we've been hearing these great stories about you. In fact, we want to make a film based on the story of your life. And you get to choose what famous Hollywood actor plays you in the starring role. So who would play you in the story of your life? And I asked the audience to think about that. And then I bring five men on stage for this particular room routine. And I give each of them a, could be a blackboard, a whiteboard, whatever, piece of card. And I have them write down the name of the famous Hollywood actor who would play them in the story of their life. And, uh, and then the boards are placed face down and all mixed up and put on a table. And I pick them up one at a one, show it to the audience. It says Tom Hanks. And I show it to the five men on stage and say, okay, we need a line from a Tom Hanks movie. And the audience helps me. And let's say it's Wilson. Doesn't matter what it is where life is like a box of chocolate. Then I have each of the five men on stage deliver that line as if they're Tom Hanks. And I try to make the connection as to who I deduce out of the five believes that Tom Hanks would best represent them in the story of their life. And it's funny because the physicality is rarely connected, right? It's like the guy who thinks Brad Pitt would best play him does not look like Brad Pitt. So, so I connect uh, four of those and then it leaves the fifth and final one face down on the table. I've never looked at, et cetera. And four people are holding the names of four different actors in front of their chest so the audience could read the name. And then I say, if I've correctly deduced the famous actor who would play you in the story of your life, please take your seats to this well-deserved round of applause. All four men leave the stage. So I'm four for four, leaving the fifth guy on stage. And I say to the, the audience, well, obviously, if I just picked up that last board, looked at the name and said, well, this is you, that would be like a crap ending, wouldn't it? So we're going to do this in a slightly different way. And I go through a questionnaire with this person, a sort of A or B, sushi or steak, skydive or scuba dive, ask his preferences on each. 
And then I tried to determine without looking at the name, what famous Hollywood actor would play him in the story of his life. And I usually get it right. And he goes to his seat. So it's a really fun routine. It's a great routine, but I was working because I also consult other performers. I was working with a, a performer in another country. And he said to me, well, we have different um, actor stars here. Hollywood stars are known, but not to the same extent they would be in North America. What else could we do? So again, back to the creative process, I have to solve a, a problem here, right? The, the, the structure of the routine works beautifully. We have method, we have audience involvement, but how do we do this in a different way? And again, uh, I don't remember how long it was and all of a sudden it came back to me. Ah, okay, now here's the introduction. Um, raise your hand if you believe in reincarnation. People raise their hand. Nice to see you again. I know that's an old joke, but I understand uh, reincarnation's making a comeback. <sighs> Bad joke, okay, I'm sorry. I want you to imagine you're going to be reincarnated, but you're gonna come back as an animal and you get to choose the specific animal you're going to be reincarnated as. I now bring five people on stage. Gender no longer matters because Brad Pitt is probably not a woman. That's why I go with five men in the first presentation. But now it can be a family show. It can be uh, men and women. It doesn't really matter who's on stage. And I hand out the boards and say, write down the specific animal. And a cat or dog is fine, but be specific. So if it's a, if it's a dog, you know, maybe write Shih Tzu or whatever. And now instead of doing lines from movies, if the first one says cow, I have everybody move. And I tell you, the most jaded audience lose their shit while the people they know are up there. And even the guy who's too cool for school and goes moo gets the biggest laugh. <laughs> so so we took we took a routine and we just kept we kept working it, kept refining it. And I, I don't even do the story of your life anymore. I just do the animal routine now. It kills. It's, it's fun for me. It's fun for the audience. Uh, runs about 10 minutes. And people just eat it up. And the people on stage, generally speaking, who are performing this thing, again, this is you know pre-COVID and hopefully relatively soon in the near future, they, they just have a blast. Uh, you know, I had a guy who was... Uh, I think the thing said some kind of snake and he starts, he f falls flat in the ground and starts slithering around on the stage. I mean, people love the opportunity to, if you've seen a hypnosis show, a lot of, a lot of what you see people do is inside them. They're just looking for that release point and it gives them that opportunity. It's the same with, with what I do. I want to give people an opportunity to express themselves, to have fun and in turn to, to uh, have everybody who's watching, who's participating in the show, uh, enjoying themselves. You recently um, put out a book called Setting the Stage, and I, I was curious as to why did you write it, and what were you hoping that the people that read the book get out of it? Well, I wanted to share my thinking. The book is, um, the book is a, a real yin-yang of what I do, and I believe all life is very much a balancing act of I don't want to say the two hemispheres of the brain, but in this case, there's a sort of analytical side of me and the creative side. And I've always felt fortunate that, that I spend a lot of time on both sides. I, you know, I'm, I'm like the guy who thinks, well, here's the, what's the craziest thing we could do. I used to do this in the radio business. We want to do a promotion. What's the, the craziest, most insane thing we could do that'll get attention and people will enjoy. 
Let's give away a condominium to the 501st caller. No qualifying, no jumping through hoops. You call now, if you're the 501st caller, you're gonna win a condominium in downtown Vancouver. And of course, everybody in the meeting says, no, seriously, what do you wanna do for the fall promotion? I'm like, I wanna give away a condominium. To, we have this client, the address is the 501 whatever street. Uh, there's a suite 501. So let's give away suite 501 in the 501 to the 501st caller. We can't do that, it's never been done before. So that's the creative side, it's the why can't we, right? Now we get to the practical side, how can we? Well, what if we front load the promotion for two months ahead of time, we say we're gonna do this without any notice at some point in the future, we're gonna tell you about this new development at the 501 in Vancouver. And then one day we just do it. And now I have to put on my sales hat and go meet with the clients, their agency, pitch the idea. And we do that. And we give away the 500, the five, sweet 501 in the 501 to the 500 first caller and knock out two thirds of the phone lines in the lower mainland in Vancouver back in the day when, unfortunately, <laughs> there weren't as many cell phones and a lot of businesses were quite pissed off at us. But, but that's kind of the process of the yin yang. So it's the same, I think, in almost every walk of life. And certainly what I do, so I created the book in that same framework where half of the book are what I call backstage chapters. They're essays on performance, character development, um, mental state, what I talked to you about rehearsal versus practice, all those, those elements that go into being a performer. And then the other half are actual original routines, presentations. Um, so that's the, the balancing act, the yin and the yang. So I felt I had a lot to share in terms of both of those things. And a lot of my background is a, is a, a program director and doing a lot of the other stuff, I think gives me a, a unique voice in our community, which is a relatively small one, you know, the magic and mentalism community is, I, I don't wanna throw numbers out, but we're talking small thousands of people, uh, uh, you know, throughout the world. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of people, people who are, are serious about this. It's, it's gonna be in the tens of thousands. And the community that I'm targeting for this, mentalists is of course a, a subset of that, even smaller. So it's not a large community, but for me, this was an important thing to do. It's almost a legacy piece, right? I didn't do anything like this in the radio business. I think that my work kind of speaks for itself. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to win industry awards and things like that. And now this is the thing that I wanna do to leave my mark on this community. Well, I mean, it's interesting because you did send me some of the uh, backstage chapters, and I thought that there was so much in there that actually applied to pretty much anybody that was going to perform in any manner. It didn't have to be just somebody getting up on stage, but I mean, there were so many stories that applied to people being prepared for their best performance, whatever that was going to be. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I think that, that that's a function of, again, I go back to that role of being a director, right? I was a program director very early in my radio career. I continue to consult with performers. My thinking, you know, as a, and, I, and I've done, I've done consulting with companies and a lot of what I do in my keynotes is really getting the best performance out. It's about um, communication, creativity, problem solving, influence techniques. And it's really all about that how to look at things in a slightly different manner. And as you said, how to be really 
well prepared for whatever challenge uh, is there. You know, the, the um, notion, I still play video games, by the way, and I'm playing one currently that is so engaging and yet so tremendously challenging. It's right on the sort of the, the precipice of my wanting to throw the controller and walk away. But I keep going back and I'm trying to find creative solutions around things. And when you accomplish something like that, when you overcome a, a seemingly insurmountable challenge, I, I think getting on the other side of that and, and, and the joy you feel, winning an audience over, when I go in to an event and I find out that everybody was bussed in and they were, you know, there was booze flowing on that bus and they're already three quarters into the bag by the time the buffet opens and I got to go on in an hour. Uh, I just, I just say, let's see what you can do. This is a real challenge here. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't do the fight or flight thing. I just say, just be in the moment. You're so lucky to be doing what you're doing. Um, and that's, that's how, you know, for me as a performer, I overcome any stress about a particular set of circumstances. The mic isn't working, the lighting's crap, the stage is too small, all those things. The moment that I'm introduced and I walk out on stage, it's all about making that connection as quickly as possible and, and maintaining that. And if I've done that, um, that's what it's all about. And you're right, that, that extends into, I think, any business, um, any vocation, any uh, hobby where we're trying to make a connection. So I'd love to know how you ended up on the Penn and Teller show Fool Us and what that experience was like. Yeah, talk about practice and rehearsal. So, so when you're, when you're uh, shooting uh, a television show, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot that occurs in a short period of time. It creates some some uh, stress. There's no question about it. I did a show, a stage show. I do. I used to, and back in the olden days, uh, do a few uh, public theater shows, which is probably my favorite thing to do. Your name's in the marquee. They're there to see you. You you. That audience is there for you, and you can really go places you can't in a corporate show or let's face it, people's attention spans a little shorter and environment is always perfect. But when people are in a theater and they're there to see you, wow, you can do some amazing stuff. So I um, created this show called Eric Samuel's Liar. And the premise of the show was that I'm a professional liar. I do this for a living. But all of us, in our own way, are liars. We lie in life. And, and it's an examination of how we lie in the different ways. And everything over the show was... I think it was about an hour and 40 minutes with an intermission was about the ways in which we lie and revealing things like lie detection and stuff like that. And there's a lot of really fun and funny stuff. And uh, I, I was really proud of the show. And one of the routines I created for the show was this um, idea of I'm a lie curator that I collect a lot of the my favorite lies and they're here on this board. And I did that presentation and, and as I was putting it together, I thought this would be so perfect for Penn and Teller because that's such a huge part of their brand, right? Which is busting liars and people who misrepresent what they do as being something other. So I knew the producer, one of the producers of the show because we had talked in, in the past and I, I did this really quick video, literally in my living room of the presentation that I hadn't even performed yet on stage because the opening 
was I think uh, early January, and I think this was back in late November. So I was still in the process of, I was in practice and rehearsal stage, right? Um, so this thing was like raw and they loved it, but didn't like how I ended it because it was too similar to something else that occurred in the show. So they kind of said, we love it. Penn and Teller are gonna love it because they can't know who you are or what you're doing on the show. It's legitimately treated as a, as a secret. In fact, when they're walking you to the stage, there's someone walking ahead to make sure neither Penn nor Teller are in the hallways and see you. It's, it's pretty strict in that way because of the nature of the show, which is viewed as a competition and in America, there are specific laws because of uh, things that have happened in the past on American game shows that you may be somewhat familiar with. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a movie about that. Yeah. So, um, so they said, uh, it's kind of like, what else you got? But no, we like the premise and can you get you something else by Friday? I'm like, that's the whole payoff. <laughs> you know, the whole principle of the principle of this routine was different. So I'm like, yeah, I could do that. And I don't know, I think it was Monday. Uh, so here we go again, back into that creative challenge situation. And I kind of thought about it and I analyzed it. I spoke to a few people that, um, that know what I do and do something similar and I bounced ideas off and we did a little brainstorming and stuff. And then it just came to me, hey, how about this? And I pitched it to the producers, they loved it. And bang, 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 I'm, I'm in Las Vegas uh, shooting the bit. I'm I'm going to lead you because I know that there was a little bit of a to do with the stage staging of it. Because everything was so last minute, the, the the physical board that I had, the prop, was being made by a, a friend of mine who's in the UK, and we didn't have enough time for him to ship it to me in Canada, so he shipped it directly to Las Vegas. It arrived the night before my flight. And the next morning, I was scheduled to appear in the production room and perform this thing for, I didn't know at the time, essentially a full room of, I think the gaffer was, I mean, that everybody was in that room. There was a table of people seated, there were people standing. And of course, everybody's giving you notes after the fact. So the thing arrives, I get in, my flight's late, I unpack the thing, everything looks to be cool. The next morning I go down and I, I do the routine, I get some notes actually, there were some good notes provided by the producers. And then I think it's the next day that I'm scheduled to do, so dress is like at 2.30 in the afternoon and then I think the show is sometime, they don't even tell you where you are in the run order for a variety of reasons. First of all, because television, right? You shoot and reshoot, you have to, so I knew that the actual taping started at eight o'clock. So I'm going to be on sometime after that. So I go out at, at my scheduled uh, dress rehearsal for two 30. And I'm also wearing a brand new suit for the show. That was pretty slim, tight fitting. And, uh, and there's two people sitting in the chairs for those familiar with the show, Penn and Teller sit in these two chairs, you're on stage. And of course they have these stand-ins for the dress rehearsal. Uh, and I come out and I do the routine and it's just a mess. Like I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I had physical issues with the, the, the stand and the tiles and, uh, my, my jacket was so tight when I reached across, I'd knock something, which caused me of course, to get flustered and throw a line. So it was what I would describe as uh, not good dress rehearsal. <laughs> so amazing crew and uh, uh, the guy on props said, you know, why don't I, cause I, again, this, this is crazy. I had a, an easel come in from uh, amazon.com that was shipped there. 
and the thing came in from the UK. They were married together, but they didn't perfectly fit. They took it off and did some fine tuning for me, brought it down to essentially the, um, the basement where uh, Penn and Teller keep all their old props and stuff. And it's sort of the green room where you wait to go on. And I just went down there and went through it again and again. I did, I did more practice and rehearsal, but I wanted to get the, the physical elements. And I, you know, I had a moment there where I said, okay, what if I start at the back and grew the front? Anyway, time I go up and I don't know what time it was uh, in the real world. And I did the routine and, you know, as flawless as it could have been under the circumstances. So there, there's in theater, there's an old notion that if your, you know, dress rehearsal is good, opening night will suck and vice versa. So I guess I, I followed through with a, uh, an axiom from, uh, uh, from the theater world that my dress rehearsal sucked. So opening night was pretty good. Do you get, do you get nervous right before you start any performance? Yeah, I do. And, uh, I can safely say that the one time that I remember specifically not being nervous and being a little too calm. And I think I was distracted. I, I've had two terrible nights on stage, probably more than that mediocre nights, but I once got the red light at a, a yuck yucks, which means get off our stage. Um, and, and when I say once, I'm, if there are comics listening, they're going like only once. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was doing a thing at, um, uh, what was the club? Um, there was a group of us and we workshop stuff at, a, at a, a railway club in Vancouver. And I was so casual, went on one night and did it. And I was just like total chill. I thought I have total control. It was, just, the show sucked. It was just, it, 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 I wasn't in the zone. And, and what I realized is that that stress, that moment, that anxiety, that is, again, that's your body preparing itself for a bizarrely unusual set of circumstances where here I am as a human being walking out on a stage, not only being the center of attention, but um, I'm expected to entertain people um, in, a, in a really unusual way. And um, if you don't feel a little anxious about that, well, I mean, some people are built that way, but I still do get uh, nervous for particular shows where for whatever reason, I'm, you know, more stressed. It's I think, you know, I know if I go into a room and I know the audience makeup, generally speaking, or a theater show, whatever, I have a, a, an extra boost of confidence in that. I've sort of been here, done that. When it's a new environment or it might be a psychographic or, a, you know, a, an industry or something that I don't really feel a natural connection with, I have to work harder. And those are usually the best shows. If that makes sense. Oh, totally. Absolutely. So what's next for you? Wow. Um, well, you know, doing online shows, I've, I've adapted, but I don't love it. I'm having fun with it, but I really want to get back to being in the, I, th I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people in that we want to get back and see live entertainment and be in the room and feel safe about that and, and everything else. So I think that's, that's something that I'm looking forward to. Um, been doing more lecturing for mentalism groups, magic clubs, things like that. And I talk about a lot of the stuff in the book and get into more detail on, you know, uh, I break down more into the, uh, the micro elements of some of the things that I discuss. Um, that's really fun to me. Teaching and, and lecturing and stuff has always been something I've enjoyed. 
again, I think it's just naturally part of my DNA. And, and to just continue to create, um, you know, new ideas, original content, because that's still one of the things that, that gives me a, a, an amazing amount of pleasure. In fact, I have something new that uh, has to do with music that I'm really excited about, that um, I'm still in the practicing, moving into the rehearsal stage on. So I get excited about uh, something new like that because, well, let's face it, it's like, you know, you've written a new song and you want to perform it, right? And, and fine-tune it as you go along. If you'd like to find out more about Eric or see some of the examples of his work, maybe even book him for an event, please visit his website, ericsamuels.com. If you're enjoying The Creationist, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and new episodes will be delivered to you as soon as they go live. You can also follow The Creationist podcast on Facebook and Instagram for photos, videos, and additional stories about our guests, including a link to Eric's performance on the Penn & Teller show, Fool Us. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Farron. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.